hated fan, and I will never watch enough episodes to be labelled a Trekkie. But I do recall one episode of Star Trek, The Next Generation, quite vividly. In it, the android Data is on a quest to discover human emotions. But despite his best attempts, he finds that though he can imitate outward motions, the mechanical actions, he cannot engender the inward reality, the corresponding emotion. I remember thinking to myself, what a terrible lot. Imagine being unable to feel anything, to be completely insensitive to the love of another, to be unable to express my love to another. But then the thought came to me that in fact such a situation is not altogether uncommon in human relationships. For the sad fact is that in many relationships there is a shift of gears from where love is felt to where love is feigned as one side or the other ends up going through the motions, the mechanical conduct of care, detached from the inner reality. Undoubtedly this is very sad when it occurs in any human relationship. But it is most terrible when it occurs in an individual's relationship with God. Where a once-deep lover of God finds himself within a sectional short circuit. However it happened, they now feel little of the love of God, scant little of the grace of God. If you doubt such a thing is possible for a follower of God to experience, then consider with me the nation of Israel some 400 years before Christ. A nation surely, at this point, numb to the grace of God dead to delight in its God. Oh, you wouldn't have thought it from the outside. One hundred years have passed since Israel have returned from exile in forced exile in Babylon. And now back in their homeland, they have rebuilt the temple some eighty years previously with a little encouragement from the prophet Haggai. Sacrifices are being regularly offered in the temple. And both priests and people seem generally religious. Even the blatant idolatry which characterized the pre-exilic community seems almost absent. But beneath the surface, like wood rot beneath your floorboards, things weren't so clever. You see, the messianic age, a promised day of God's rich blessing for his people, which Israel had hoped for on their return from the land, or into the land had not arrived. And even the rebuilding of the temple had not ushered in this great day. If truth were told, as the long years have passed, 100 years or so, the people are beginning to wonder if this day is coming at all. If God is coming. And though they haven't given up coming to the temple week by week, day by day, in their hearts, one by one, they've given up on their God. I wonder 
if you've ever been there. I wonder if you are at that place even this evening. If so, the encouraging news is that God hasn't given up on you as he hadn't given up on Israel. And by his grace, he sends a messenger to the people carrying a fatherly note of love and warning. And this comes through the prophet Malachi, whose name means my messenger. Perhaps this was his actual name, or maybe this was just his function. Whatever the case, this individual brought a vital message to the people of God from the Lord that would sustain them through many years of waiting. Waiting for the final messenger. Waiting for God's Messiah. And so as we continue our series tonight, Major Lessons in the Minor Prophets, we've chosen as our title for the book of Malachi, The Message and the Messenger. Let's turn then to Malachi's prophecy. Uh, There's quite a bit to cover, so let's delve in. It would help to have a Bible in front of you, I'm sure. And it's on page 960 in the Pew Bibles. If you don't have a Bible, then feel free to take one of the red Bibles in the pews. If you find Matthew at the beginning of the New Testament, you can just flick back a page or two and you'll find Malachi. And we're going to read Malachi chapter 1 and verses 1 to 5 for now. An oracle, the word of the Lord to Israel through Malachi, my messenger. I have loved you, says the Lord. But you ask, how have you loved us? Was not Esau Jacob's brother, the Lord says? Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. And I have turned his mountains into a wasteland and left his inheritance to the desert jackals. Edom, that is Esau's descendants, may say, Though we have been crushed, we will rebuild the ruins. But this is what the Lord Almighty says. They may build, but I will demolish. They will be called the wicked land, a people always under the wrath of the Lord. You will see it with your own eyes, and say, great is the Lord, even beyond the borders of Israel. Amen. The problem with complacency is that by definition, a complacent person is too indifferent to know it or care about it. I'm reminded of the story of a radio uh, program which phoned round homes taking a random poll. They called up one lady And they asked her, what do you think is the biggest problem facing society today? Do you think the biggest problem is ignorance or apathy? Without a pause, the woman slammed down the phone with a parting shot, I don't know and I don't care. (laughs) See the problem? If you're complacent, you may be ignorant of the fact, or well aware, but not bothered enough to do anything. And so it is in the case of the complacent Christian. Surprisingly, you might think, they usually keep coming to church on a Sunday. For that's what they've always 
done or done for quite a while. They still sing the songs. And they're far too polite not to say Amen at the end of the prayers. Possibly, they attend a fellowship group. And maybe, they still serve in a church context. In fact, they may even be found in a position of leadership. Serving on a particular court. Leading a church service. Preaching a sermon. And of course, that makes it very hard to identify this individual problem of complacency, apathy. And it's even worse when it happens en masse. When, like Israel, you have not just a complacent individual, but a complacent community. If you go to the doctor with an illness, he or she will usually look for a number of symptoms before they will make a sure diagnosis. If you have just one symptom, but not others, they are unlikely to make a diagnosis. But say there are three, four, or five symptoms, then the problem will be perfectly obvious to them and to us. Israel have multiple symptoms of spiritual malaise. And we're going to spend some time on these as we do. Why don't you ask yourself the question, are any of these signs true of me? True of my heart? Well, first of all, and perhaps most seriously, we find that they're denying God's love. In this amazing opening to the prophecy, which we'll come back to in some more detail, the Lord begins with an affirmation of love to his own people. But staggeringly, Israel responds, How? How have you loved us? Think for a moment of a couple that you know, a married couple, who have been together for 25 years plus. Maybe 40 years, maybe 50 years. I don't know them, but I would guess that there has probably been a lot of love under the bridge in that particular relationship. Over the years, each spouse has given themselves sacrificially for the other. They've worked together to support each other financially. Perhaps they've raised children together, not without some tears. They may have even buried parents and brought comfort to their spouse in that time of grief. And yet, whatever the circumstances, love has always been expressed. But just imagine that on a special wedding anniversary, special occasion, one spouse declares their love to the other. I, I love you. With all that weight of history behind the statement. And just imagine that the other partner turns to them and says, Do you really love me? Did you say? That would be shocking. That would be unthinkable. But that would be precisely what Israel said to the Lord, the one who has lavished his love on them in so many ways over so many years. And friends, it's a sure symptom of spiritual decline when we no longer feel at a heart level the great love of God for us. This numbness to the Lord's affection is the first symptom of spiritual complacency. But notice the second symptom they were displaying. They were also denying God's name. And you see there's verse references for all of these. This week was the 200th anniversary of the Battle of Trafalgar. And uh, much was spoken about the key leader in the battle, Lord Nelson. 
One of the things talked about was the high regard with which his men held Lord Nelson. He had what historians have come to call the Nelson Touch. His unerring ability to quell mutiny and keep his men on side. So that his crew's desire was to fight for him and even to die for him so that his name might be remembered. But of the most infinitely respectable being in all the universe, Israel has no such esteem for the Lord's name. No, says the Lord, while he is their father, they do not honor him so. He says, verse 6, that a son honors his father. That's how things usually are in your society, isn't it? But not, it seems, in Israel's relationship with the Lord. If I am your father, where is the honor due to me? And moreover, he adds, if I am your master, then where is my fear? Again, the usual way of things in this culture was that a servant would honor his master. Yet it's ever so strange, says the Lord, if I am your master, then where is the respect due to me? And furthermore, if I am your God, which you claim me to be, then why is your worship so shabby? Verse 8. Why do you bring second-rate sacrifices your blind, crippled, and diseased animals, and not the best of your flock. You see, they were despising the Lord's name in these particular ways, these particular attitudes, and it was becoming evident in their outward practice, their outward devotion. And so, of course, it easily infiltrated from their attitude uh, into their actions in terms of the Lord's commands, the statutes of God. Evidently, they were soon defying God's law. And in particular, you'll notice, the Lord highlights the whole area of marriage. They are particularly defying God in this area. On the one hand, the men folk of Israel, verse 11 of chapter 2, some of them seem to be a little too keen to marry foreign women. The problem wasn't that the women were foreign, per se, but rather that they inevitably brought with them their foreign gods. And the Lord had made it abundantly clear that Israel were to have no other gods before him. And this was a great threat to that. On the other hand, and this is quite ironic really, there were also other Israelite men who were rather too keen on divorce. Uh, some men were eager to marry the wrong women, others eager to divorce the right ones. And this latter camp were apparently divorcing promiscuously. That is, for any and every reason. And this is what happens, isn't it? Generally speaking, when we drift from God, in our attitudes, in our hearts, our behavior soon follows suit. And quickly we soon find ourselves, like Israel, even confused about the character of the God that we follow. So we're even found out in God's justice. I think Israel were a little bit like a criminal. A criminal who kids himself on that there is no such thing as the law. That there is no such thing as a, as a judge who will ever sentence him so he can get better sleep at night. And we can picture these people just saying to each other or thinking in their hearts, verse 17, where is this God of justice? Isn't the Lord really quite relaxed about these so-called transgressions anyway? And isn't it the case, in fact, 
that all who do evil are good in the eyes of the Lord and he is pleased with them? Such was the twisted grip that rebellion had taken on their, on their hearts. And so they think nothing, in fact, of even going so far as to be robbing God's treasury. We find later on in the prophecy that they were withholding their tithes and offerings from the Lord, chapter 3, verse 8. Presumably, in order to line their own pockets. And finally, it's very interesting, isn't it, that while these folks are giving less and less to the Lord, they are at the same time becoming more and more grudging about what they do give to God. They're bemoaning God's service and saying, verse 14 of chapter 3, it is futile to serve God. And asking, what have we gained by carrying out his requirements? And what's more, those boys over there, those folks who don't fear God, chapter 3, verse 15, they seem to be getting along just fine, thank you very much. So why don't we just call the arrogant blessed and admit that certainly evildoers will prosper and even those who challenge God escape. Now I wonder, very honestly, whether you've ever felt what they felt. Whether you've ever said what they said. Maybe not verbally, but maybe inwardly. I wonder if you are here tonight and you're a Christian, you claim to follow Jesus Christ, if you have ever experienced this feeling of disconnect with the love of God. Wonder whether you really are accepted before the throne. I wonder if you've ever questioned God's justice as a Christian. And ask yourself, does sin really matter anyway? I wonder, have you ever given second class or even third class offerings to God? The dregs of your day or your skills or your efforts? I wonder if you've ever found even one area of your life heading down the moral plug hole and the root of it all that you've lost sight of God's grace and love. I have do all the above, even as a Christian. So how are we to clamber out of this hole, if that is our case? If we are genuine disciples, but no longer those who desire God as we should, or as we even once did. Well, first of all, we need to recognize that we don't know the way out by ourselves, by our own solutions. Because like Israel, when the Lord says to us, return to me, chapter 3, verse 8, we, like Israel, can only honestly reply, but how are we to return? We too are ignorant of God's remedy. We need God's direction. We need a word from God. And the Lord's word to Israel, through Malachi, is to refocus their eyes, to retrain their gaze on the loving Lord. To have the love of God, as it were, in full view, written large on their hearts and on their minds. Perhaps you witnessed this personally, or you saw the pictures in the newspaper. But the night sky was pretty peculiar this week. It was dominated by the moon uh, in, in a way that made it seem much closer than usual. 
And theories were being thrown about by various people in the scientific community about why the moon appeared to be so large. However, it made me think that as Christians, when we become a Christian, new Christian, a believer tends to have the love of God looming large in their horizon. The grace of God is absolutely prominent in their view. They don't really want to talk to you about anything else than this. But unfortunately, God's love and grace so easily and often so quickly drift into the background. So that the usual state of affairs is that the love of God is present but not prominent. Like like the moon, far back in the distance. But Malachi surely teaches us that the love of God needs to constantly encompass our horizon. Which is no doubt why the Lord begins this prophecy to complacent people, not with harsh words, but with loving overtures. He declares, verse 2, I have loved you. Maybe you recall an occasion when you were young. I do, but I'm not going to fill you in on the details where you got yourself into rather big trouble. And you dreaded your parents finding out, which they inevitably did, and you would dread the first meeting after the event. Probably you were fearing the worst. But when they came, and before you even got the chance to explain yourself, they interjected, and they said, Listen, regardless of what you've done, I want you to know that we love you. Always have loved you. We always will love you. And then they probably carried on the scolding. But the Lord says, listen, I know what you've done. Israel will get to that. But let's first talk about what I've done. And my track record is that I have loved you. That's the summary of my commitment to you, my people. And yet in their incredible apathy... Israel cannot feel the fact. And so they naturally deny it. But how have you loved us? I think if I were the Lord, I wouldn't have been so gracious with them. What do you mean you don't know how I've loved you? But thankfully the Lord is infinitely more gracious than I. And he gently reminds Israel of his love for them. And he gives them an example, an illustration, that proves that this is so And he takes them back to one of a thousand possible stops in their history of his loving faithfulness, his dealings with them. He takes them back right to the very genesis of the nation, to the very start of his marriage with them. And he calls on them to ponder his choosing or his election of Jacob, their forefather. And this demonstrates his love, his great love very popular these days to find uh, people who trace their family tree. And the Lord says, let's do a bit of research together. Come on, let's scour the records of my history with your family. Let's go back to the grandsons of your father, Abraham, Jacob and Esau. Of course, the Israelites knew perfectly well the story of these two individuals. They hardly needed a history lesson here. But the Lord begins by asking them, strangely, verse 3, was not Esau the brother of Jacob? Presumably, I think, the Lord intends 
that they should elaborate on the answer in their minds. Yes, Lord, Esau was Jacob's brother. In fact, he was his twin brother. And if you'd really like to know, Lord, Esau was his slightly older brother, enjoying all the rights and privileges that older brothers had in those days. And the Lord says, precisely, you're halfway to getting my point. Because your expectation would have been that if I was going to fulfill my promise to Abraham to make a great nation from him, then surely Esau, given his privilege, would have been the man for the job. Yet the Lord says, you know the story. Remember who I chose. Even though Esau was the likely candidate, even though arguably Esau was more likable than Jacob, nevertheless, I have loved Jacob, but Esau I've hated. Relatively speaking, in respect of my choice of Jacob over Esau, Esau I have hated and Jacob I have loved. Of course, Esau made his own bed as well, and he was perfectly responsible for the godless path that he took. But nevertheless, the blessing of the Lord on Jacob was completely unmerited. It was an act of amazing grace. And the Lord says, this is the kind of love I have for you, Israel. You are not my people because you deserve it. That's a stunning truth of election. It's sad to say, of course, that in many churches today, the doctrine of election has caused great dispute among Christians. And I say sad because frequently in Scripture, when election is spoken of, it is usually talked about with the purpose of promoting grateful hearts and thankfulness and praise. We're meant to be thankful that however God did it, however we understand it, He in an amazing way chose us, even as we came to Him. Friends, it should delight us, not divide us. I like what Richard Buse says about election. It is a family secret, recognized only from the inside. We step in by an act of the will, through a gateway placarded by the words, whoever is thirsty, let him come. That's human responsibility. We enter only to look back and see the caption on the inside of the door, chosen in him before the creation of the world. That's God's sovereignty. And you see, this is the antidote to apathy. This morning we were thinking about the antidote to anxiety. This is the cure for complacency. To look back with God's help on the basic facts, the wonderful facts of God's grace. To recognize that mature Christians never depart from the cross. And to realize that every Christian problem results from a departure from the cross. When we take our eyes away from God's love and grace and mercy. So let me be very practical and make a few suggestions about how we might look back and focus on the loving Lord to us. Well, along with your Bible reading and your praying this week, why not take ten minutes aside every day to meditate on God's grace and love to you? Why not go back in your mind, for example, to your conversion? Maybe you've not done that for quite a while. Maybe the last time you recounted your 
testimony was at a baptismal service or something like that many years ago. And turn over in your mind the circumstances of that. The providences of God. How God brought you to himself. And then spend another five minutes thanking God for all that he has done 40 years ago, 10 years ago, 6 months ago, and still continuing. If that doesn't desensitize your spiritual taste buds, little else will. But why stop there? Why not venture even further back? Like we did this morning to the place where the peace treaty with God was ratified. And take your place regularly, not just once a month, but daily, at the foot of the cross. Perhaps taking a good Christian book on Christ crucified, and just reading a page or two a day, and pondering the amazing fact that Christ loved you and gave himself for you, that the blood of God's Son was spilled for you. But on his lacerated back, imperceptibly written in the wounds, was your name for Colin, for Christine, for Bill, for Ruth. But why stop even there? If that doesn't stir up our fading affections, why not go further back to where the scripture says, when it says, we've already read part of it, he chose us in him before the creation of the world, to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love he predestined us to be conformed, to be holy and blameless in his sight, to be adopted as his sons through Christ Jesus in accordance with his pleasure and his will. Now just as we come to a finish, let me touch on a second response Israel had to make. And this time, it was not to look to past grace, but to trust in future grace. And as James said, God willing, next week, Peter will be coming and unpacking some of the later verses of Malachi and looking at the 400 silent years before Jesus came. Let me just briefly mention the two messengers who are found at the end of this book of Malachi. The first courier is cryptically named Elijah, chapter 4, verse 5. This is one who will prepare the way for the Lord, chapter 3, verse 1, and who will smooth the road for his coming. And of course, with knowledge of the New Testament, we know that this figure was fulfilled in John the Baptist. However, this courier is really just paving the way for a much greater messenger, greater than Malachi greater than himself, a messenger who will be more than a man. Chapter 3, verse 1. For then, suddenly, the Lord you are seeking will come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant, whom you desire, will come. And of course, from the New Testament, we know this to be fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ. And only this messenger can ultimately deal with the hard hearts of sinful, rebellious, God-hating humanity. Only this Lord and Saviour will be able not only to declare the message of God's love, but to actually die to make the experience of it possible. 
So, as we finish tonight, here are two challenging questions for two types of people who might be here this evening. Maybe you're here tonight and you're not, in fact, a Christian at all. This sermon has been mainly aimed at people in the, in the church of God and maybe you know this hasn't really applied directly to you. But maybe indirectly. So let me ask you a, a fundamental question. Have you welcomed the messenger? Have you welcomed the messenger who is the Lord? You see, it's only when we personally know the expression of God's love, the Lord Jesus, that we can come to know the Father God and His love. Tonight, you can turn from rebel living and trust in the one who brings you real life, life to the full, coming in simple faith to Him and in turnaround living. The second question, if you are a Christian, have you forgotten the message by which I mean the gospel message, the grace message, the love story. Has the old, old story become worn out in your hearing? And has therefore your heart grown cold to the love of God somewhat? And your Christian life descended from relationship back into religion? If so, then look back. See the record of God's love for you. I have loved you, says the Lord. And when you get done, if you get done, drinking from that vast reservoir, then look forward. Trust in future grace. Expecting the second coming of the Lord Jesus. Looking back and looking forward and always looking to the loving Lord. This 